Do you remember the first time that you lost faith in something? I do. The first thing I lost faith in was grown-ups. I learned that adults are liars. This is how it happened. I was going with my family to a Sears to get family pictures taken. Back in the day, that's what you had to do. You went to a Sears, a Sears, a Sears, uh, a Loblaws, a Sears, something like that. They had a little studio set up. You all went in wearing blue jeans and white shirts and they took pictures. We were doing this. We went in, we all posed. The lady said, smile. And I did not. She said, hey, if you smile, I'll show you what's in this box. And she pulled out a black box and began to shake it. And I started to imagine all the things that could be in this box. I thought there could be, there could be cookies, there could be toys, there could be firecrackers and EpiPens. This is fantastic. All right, lady, you got a deal. So I smiled. She took the picture. Everybody was happy. I went up to her after and I said, hey, hey, lady, we got a deal. Show me what's in the box. She said, no. I said, hey, you told me if I smiled, you would show me what's in the box. This is what she did. She said, I lied. And she walked away. I've never been the same since. Uh, how, how, how can you just lie? You can't just say that and walk away. What kind of world is this? So I asked God not to bless Sears. He honored my prayer. They're bankrupt. That woman should have kept her promise. But that was the first thing that I lost faith in. How about you? What have you lost faith in this past year, year and a half, this COVID season? What has let you down that you put your trust in? You tell the person beside you. You tell me in the chat. I'd love to know. Has it been the government, our civil servants? Has it been media, social media, perhaps? The healthcare system, the education system, perhaps our criminal justice system in the summer, that was a big topic. Maybe your friends have let you down, your citizens, you've lost faith in the citizens of Canada. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's yourself. Have you lost faith in yourself? I have, I, I have. During um, kind of like the period before COVID, I thought that I was a productivity machine. I was doing a master's program and I was doing all the readings for my master's program and I was reading other stuff on the side just for fun. I was working out all the time. I was running a business on the side. I had hobbies on the side. I thought, you know, if you locked me up and put me away for a couple months, there is nothing that I couldn't accomplish. So when the government locked everything up or down, I imploded. I didn't start gardening. I didn't read more. I didn't get a six pack. I didn't develop my business. The biggest challenge of my lifetime and I did not step up to the plate. So I've lost faith in myself in this period. Perhaps where you're at right now is a season of lost faith in people and institutions around you. Perhaps you're actually fearful about the future because there's nothing left to trust. Maybe you're wondering this. In this last season, is God worthy of my trust? God says he has a better way. God says he has a different way. Should I believe him though? God says he can be for me what I can't be for myself, but every single other person has let me down. How can I trust that God will do this for me as well? That's what we're talking about today. In this life, you can live by fear or you can live by faith. Today, we're saying yes to faith and no to fear. We're looking at a case study of this in the book of Romans chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with me, would you please turn to that? Romans chapter 4, we're looking at the second half of it, verses 13 to 25. We've been working through the book of Romans over these past Sundays between January and now, kind of off and on. Last week, we looked at the first half of chapter four and how faith is greater than works. Paul's making this argument that faith is over works. And so if we trust God, 
to be our righteousness, three things now are true for the person who trusts in God to be their righteousness. First, good deeds can't earn God's gift, this gift of righteousness. Second, evil deeds can't remove this gift of God's righteousness. And thirdly, we live marked by God's gift of this righteousness. Paul is now extending this argument and he's saying, just as we received righteousness through faith, we are now recipients of God's promise through faith. We are heirs of the things that he has said he will do for us. Because of our being in this new family, we have a new inheritance. If you were adopted into the royal family today, your inheritance would look a little bit different. So Paul's saying it's a continuation of the same argument from last week. So let's read the first three verses, 13, 14, and 15. For the promise to Abraham, come back to that in a second, and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world. Okay. Did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So Paul is beginning the second half of the chapter kind of with a negative. He says, is it this? No, it's not the case. He's explaining the negative side of this point. Being recipients of this promise is not because of our adherence to the law. Now, I underlined promise because this, this use of the word promise, it's kind of it's this overarching term that encompasses all of the promises that God made to Abraham. There's three big ones that we see in the book of Genesis. First, God promises Abraham with a son. He actually promises him with many offspring. He says, your offspring, your children, will be more numerable than the stars. That's promise number one. Promise number two is a land. I'm going to give a place for you all to be. And thirdly, he says, I'm going to bless the world through you, through this new family, through these new people that I'm going to establish myself. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that they would be, that he would be heir of the world. In the Old Testament, you see this this reference of being an heir to the world is referring to kind of a specific piece of grass. But later in the Old Testament, you see an expansion of this concept that it's referring to the whole planet, the new heavens and the new earth. You see this in Isaiah 55, and even Jesus touches upon it in the Beatitudes. He says specifically, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth, the same phrasing that we see here, or blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be sons and daughters of God. We're seeing this, that God is going to bless the world. He's coming to establish a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. And those in his family get to be heirs of this with him. We get to come into this new place with him. So that's what they're saying. Now, this promise is not for those who perfectly obey the law. When God came to Abraham, he did not say this. He did not say, Hey, you're a great guy, and I'm looking for a great guy. That's not what happened. God looked around and said, "Uh, I only see bad guys here. I'll start with you. The Bible isn't full of good guys and bad guys. It's full of bad guys who need Jesus. So God takes bad people, puts them on team Jesus. If you waited for only good people to get things done, nothing would get done. And this is great news for us. Why? If the inheritance of the law were the heirs, of the promise, then faith is null and the promise is void. God couldn't use his promises if he's waiting for perfect people. 
There's a Christian writer, a theologian, John Stott. He's fantastic. This is how he explains it. Law language, you shall, demands our obedience. But promise language of I will demands our faith. So Paul reminds us here that if the promise is based upon our obedience, it's void. But if the promise is based upon our faith in God, it demands our trust, but not our obedience as well. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Transgression, let me explain trespassing versus transgression here. Trespassing is when you're going on a hike, you're walking through hills and valleys and forests, and you realize, oh, we're actually on private property right now. We veered a little bit off the trail, now I'm trespassing. Transgressing is when you're going on a hike, you see a fence that says private property, and you jump right on over. So for those whose right standing with God, whose being heirs of the promise, his recipients of the promise, for those whose reception is not based upon the law, there is now no wrath for them. That doesn't mean sin doesn't exist. It means our receiving of the promise that God has given is not dependent upon our obedience. So here's the takeaway from this. Here's the takeaway from this. Paul's showing faith apart from the law. Is God worthy of my trust? Can I trust him to keep his promises to me? Yes. Why? Because God's promise does not depend upon your perfection. God's promise to you to bless the world, to bless you, to bring in this new kingdom is not dependent upon your perfection. What does it depend upon then? Let's keep reading. Continuing on, verses 16 to 17. This is why the promise depends on faith. In order that, there's two things that are coming. In order that one, the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. This is number two. To all of his offspring, Abraham. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Shares, and there's that faith word. Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. That that was bad. Whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So in the same way that God made the promise to Abraham, Abraham of land, of people, and of a blessing, in the same way, we are also promised righteousness with God, right standing with him, members of his new kingdom, of his new covenant. And what does this rest upon? What's our assurance? Paul's answer is just one of the overall themes of the Bible. The promise will be fulfilled by grace through faith. By grace through faith. So Abraham was the prototype, the forefather, the first person, the the model citizen of this new kingdom, of this new family. And God said, just like he receives this promise through his faith, not through his obedience, same to you. God's promises of right standing with him, God's promises of eternal life, of eternity with him as well. This is not based upon your adherence to the law. It's based upon your trust in him. And just like this was true for Abraham, the same is true for you. So Paul has now laid out the conceptual framework. He's done done the groundwork and now he's going to build on it as well. So 
what does this look like for Abraham and what does this look like for us? All this stuff sounds great, but where does the rubber meet the road? Let's keep reading. A little bit further along. In hope, he, this is Abraham, believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. That's kind of a, it's an awkward phrasing. There's no great way to translate it. It means he hoped in God against the hope of man. He believed against the evidence of his circumstances. He believed beyond the evidence. Okay. In hope, he believed against hope. He believed against what he saw, so uh, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, it's a little savage Paul, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him waver. That's a good line to underline. Concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So there's a time in between. There's a time between when God makes the promise and when we see the evidence of it. This was the situation Abraham was stuck in himself. God came to Abraham when he was 75 and his wife was 65. And he said to them, you will get a son from whom will come a great nation, will come many people, and from these people will come a Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is going to bless the world. Who wants to start their family when they're 75? That's a tough thing to hear. His wife was 65, and they had no kids. What 65-year-old women want to have children? God, please give me a baby. I want us both to wear diapers at the same time. No, that's a hard truth. That's a very hard truth. Some of you, if you had three kids and God said, I'm going to give you one more, you would think, oh no, Lord Jesus, three is enough. I'm getting eight hours of sleep now. If God said to you, hey, an innumerable amount of children are going to come from you, what would you think? Honey, we got to get that Costco membership. We got innumerable children coming. I want half a pound muffins. I want bulk diapers. We need some salmon fillets. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Now consider also this. Sarah's womb was a tomb. She was barren. They had no children whatsoever. They tried all the methods, all the tricks, and Abraham believed against hope. He believed beyond the evidence around him, and he looked at things according to the divine perspective. Believing against hope is the God factor. Faith is trusting in what God says until we see what God does. Faith is this internal conviction that leads to an external action. Let me tell you what faith is not. Faith is not just positive thinking. God speaks over us. This isn't us speaking things over ourselves and holding on to the positivity of those words. Faith is not just cheap optimism. It's not just looking on the bright side of things because sometimes there's nothing bright to look at. Faith is not a fleeting feeling, but it's a concise conviction. If your faith depends upon how you feel, your faith will oscillate when your emotions and hormones do as well. God makes them wait 25 years. Now, here's something that confused me when I first read it. It said, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But what happens with Abraham and Sarah when they receive this promise? Hagar, right? We talked about that last week. 
they went to another woman and said, well, maybe God wants you to have this child through her. Abraham, why don't you sleep with her? She got pregnant. That wasn't the child they were talking about. So what does this mean about Abraham's wavering? This confused me. I looked at it in the original language, the Greek, if you will. And this is referring to the fact that Abraham did not adopt a permanent, persistent pattern of doubt and distrust of God's promises to him. Now, he did have periods of doubt. He did have periods of disbelief, but not unbelief. What's the difference between doubt and unbelief in particular? Unbelief is leaving the struggle. Doubt and wrestling is staying in the struggle. So real faith isn't perfect. Real faith is faith in a perfectly faithful God. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Things gain strength when they're tested. It says right here, but he grew strong in his faith. Faith gains strength when it's tested. You go to a gym to get stronger. Why? By picking up heavy things. It tears the muscles. And so faith too, when it's flexed, when it's used, gains strength. Abraham had to wait 25 years. 25 years, he had to hold the promise until he could hold his baby. You hold God's promises until you hold the reality that God has prepared for you. And in many ways then, Abraham foreshadowed the definition of faith that we see in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So just as we saw faith apart from the law, here we see faith apart from sight. Is God worthy of my trust? Yes, we don't have to know how God will do it to know that God will do it. So can I trust him? Yes, we can. His promises don't depend upon our perfection. And two, God's promises, God's promise doesn't depend upon our comprehension. Think of a parent driving their car and the four-year-old's in the backseat. Where are we going? Going to church. Do you know where you're going? Yes, yes, I do. Are you sure you know where you're going? Yes, you can't write your name and you wet the bed every night. Stop asking me questions, okay? If that gap is true for a parent and a child, imagine how much larger this gap in comprehension is between a finite human and the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the cosmos. God's promise does not depend upon our comprehension. All right, now let's keep going on and look at what this means for us. Paul is now going to apply this, the whole chapter. He's going to contrast the faith of Abraham and the promise to Abraham and the faith of all Christians and the promise to us. But the words, it was counted to him. This is Abraham. We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours. That's us also. It will be counted to us. Counted, that's that accounting language. Credited, deposited to us who believe in him, not who perfectly obey the law, in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, that's our sin, and raised for our justification, that is right standing with God. Paul is pulling points from the whole chapter and saying this is what it means for the Christian today. Christians, like Abraham, share their justification by faith. And God as the object of that faith, a faith that is credited or counted apart from obeying the law, apart from circumcision, apart from comprehension of the promise, apart from perfection in our obedience to earn this promise, it is a crediting that is earned purely by grace through faith. 
And now by faith, they, we are heirs to God's promise. God's promise to establish a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, new heavens and new earth, a place where sin will not be counted against us, a place where we will share in the justification that Christ has paid for us, a place with no more sin, a place with no more pain, a place with no more evil, a place with no more death. Let's compare this. Abraham and us. What was the Abraham's, uh, what am I saying? Abraham's object was God and his promises about the future, specifically descendants and blessing. That's what Abraham trusted in God for. We trust in God about his promises for the future, forgiveness of sin, eternal life, the whole canopy of blessings in the kingdom of heaven. Abraham's evidence was God's power manifested in resurrecting an aged couple's reproductive ability, a 75-year-old and a 65-year-old who were already barren and then had to wait 25 more years. For us, the evidence of God's faithfulness to his promise is his power manifested in resurrecting his son. We just saw him who was handed over for our transgressions and raised for our justification. The perspective Abraham had, Abraham had to look forward in complete faith to an event that had not happened. Abraham knew a lot less than we did. And in many ways, he trusted a lot more than we did. Abraham did not have the Bible. The Bible was not written down. And he trusted God for it. He had not seen Jesus come, live, die, and rise. But we, our perspective, are those who look back to an event that has already happened and is historically verifiable. The result is this. Faith results in Abraham being credited with righteousness. And the same is true for us. Faith results in our being credited, our being deposited, our receiving righteousness that we did not earn. And we are now heirs to God's promise. Paul is saying this, look, if the tomb is empty, the future is full. It's full of hope. It is hopeful. We can trust in God. We have evidence of a God who keeps his promises and a God who will keep his promises. So you don't need to know the future, but God does. You can't prepare for an unknown future, but you can follow the God who has a future prepared for you. This is what faith looks like. God replaces our fear-filled future with a faith-filled future. So as the world looks around for things and people and places and institutions to put their trust in, and as their faith is once again, yet again, let down, we are people that proclaim faith in the face of fear. We proclaim the goodness, the grace, and the peace of Jesus. Because in addition to all the mess that is around us, all of the reasons that there are for fear, and there's many good reasons, we also hold to the promise and the proof that we have in God, in his person, in the person and work of Christ. So our trust is in Jesus, our faith is in Jesus. As he rules and reigns over it all, we are declaring that this place, his church, Bayview Glen, is a place of faith and not of fear. We're declaring this season, this year, is a faith and not of fear. And maybe things are going to get worse. And guess what? God's promises and God's grace are going to look even better. So for the Christian watching today, where does your faith lie? Where does your trust lie? Where is your hope for the future? Is it in the economy? Is that where your security is? Is it in the government? Is it in the government's laws? Are you waiting every single four years for a new Messiah to come? Are you putting all of your expectations for the future on your kids, on your spouse, on your career? How many things are about the future are guaranteed? Donut, nothing, zero, nothing but Jesus. So when we don't know what the future holds, we cling 
to Jesus who does? That's the question for the Christian today. For the non-Christian watching this, this is, this is going to be a lot more of a delicate question. Where does your trust lie? Where is your faith? Maybe you're scared to trust again. You think, this person said that they cared about me. I trusted them and they hurt me. Or, God, I hate my family. You want me to join yours? My father is not a kind man. You want to be my father? People have hurt me in your name. I've become vulnerable and people took advantage of that. So you want me to give up my independence, my trying, my self-sufficiency, and you want me to lay all of this at your feet? Really? People have hurt me in your name. You want me to trust you for that? The past sucked, the present is worse, and the future is even going to be more terrible than this. Where is your promise? Where is your blessing? My love has been, my life has been awful. You say you love me. Is this what your love feels like? This is how I would answer that question. Have you met Jesus? Not the concept, but the person. Do you know him? This is what God's word says about it. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So are you scared to trust again? Come meet Jesus. Watch him chip away, inch by inch, the fear that is calcified around your heart. So, just as I trust God for my righteousness, I trust God for my promises. So, is God worthy of my trust? Yes. Why? God's promise doesn't depend upon your perfection. Two, God's promise doesn't depend upon your comprehension. And as we've seen, God has been faithful and God continues to be faithful. So, church, we're entering into a season of the unknown. Quite a few, actually. We're entering into the summer. What are the lockdowns going to look like? We're going to be gathering in church again, Lord willing, one day. What's that going to look like? We're also in a season of looking for a new lead pastor. What's that going to look like? Are they going to be funny? Are they going to be smart? Are they going to be too contemporary? They're going to bring in lasers and fog machines. Are they going to be way, way, way too uh, traditional? And are they going to scare all the families away? Are they going to be super liberal and lead us into heresy? Are they going to be super conservative and make all the women wear head dressings? I, I, I need to go talk to the search committee right now. Someone get me on the phone with the board. I, I'm not going to let them ruin my church. Do you hear the fear in that? We're choosing faith over fear. Last week was faith over works. This week is faith over fear. We look into the future not with fear, though there are plenty of reasons to be fearful. We look forward into the future in faith, trusting God to fulfill his promises now, just as he has in the past. Now, typically, in the service, after the word has been proclaimed, after God speaks, the congregation responds. Usually we respond with a song. But in church history, actually, What was more common was responding by reciting the creeds. Not all of them. Pick one. And this was a proclamation in response to who God is. We would proclaim the truth of this. And so that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. We're going to recite the core tenets of the Christian faith. And for you this week, maybe you're proclaiming this from a place of trust and a place of faith. Maybe this week you're proclaiming it to yourself. 
Maybe you're proclaiming this from a place of weak faith. Either one of those is appropriate. Would you proclaim with me the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.